Thanks, Greg. All right, thanks for everybody for coming, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to give a talk here at KITP. It's been great so far, and um, had a wonderful time having discussions with everybody. And uh, Greg did a, uh, and Greg and Cassandra and David Ben Simone and um, Rick Stein, Rick Michaud's not here yet, but they've all done a great job putting this on. So uh, basically. I've been thinking, I got here two weeks ago, for those of you that haven't been here the whole time. I got here right when it started, and I've been kind of thinking about, well, what should I talk about? And uh, I thought to give a, a talk that's just kind of some general concepts and um, kind of big picture type stuff might be good, because we had some kind of uh, some pretty specific uh, theory and then uh, some specific experiments and not not really any big picture stuff. So I'm titling my talk a critical look at the field of microbial social evolution. But this is kind of a uh, just it's a segue into a kind of broader talk. But I'll start out with a criticism and then get, get on with it. Okay, so. You can imagine uh, if an alien comes along and wants to know, you know, what's going on, what's going on on Earth? Why, why do these humans cooperate, right? So he might come along and uh, do a straw sample right in the middle of the U.S. You got capitalism and everything doing pretty well. Okay. Now he plates these guys out and uh, puts down something in the auger that'll kill everything that's not human. In this case, some chicken McNuggets. And uh, okay, so then he puts them in a structured and unstructured habitat, and, and it goes on, lets it uh, go on for about however many generations, 10,000 or something. So it gets all these kind of little colonies building up and doesn't quite know what they are. So he takes the microscope and looks at them. So here we've got this guy, he's kind of like a pirate. He's a going around uh, and he's got gills and he, he looks like he's evolved to this new habitat. And then uh, over here you've got a uh, kind of hero type guy that's going around saving people against the forces of evil. So, so he comes up with this grand theory of the universe. <laughs> yeah. Structured habitat, the cooperator prevails, and unstructured, the cheater persists. And then, you know, he's got all the math to back it up. And so, in my opinion, this is kind of the, uh, one of the crowning achievements of the field so far to actually critically test some of this stuff. You know, it's uh, got some tests in mixobacteria where uh, at least they've put them into a well-mixed condition and shown uh, that you can get some buildup of cheater, cheater types. Same thing in Pseudomonas and, and uh, Dictyostelium. Of course, uh, you know, there might be more things in heaven and earth than in a petri dish, right? So, uh, so where are we going to go from here? And this is something that's been brought up repeatedly as I've talked to some of the physicists around here. And um, it's well known to economists, the kind of problem of complex phenomena. How do you approach studying them? So, I really like uh, Friedrich Hayek's uh, a couple of his comments in his Nobel lecture. The first one. 
uh, in the social sciences, often that is treated as important, which is, happens to be accessible to measurement. So, and I think this is true, you know, we tend to simplify things down and, and look at what we can measure, but that's it's not always the most important thing. Um, and then secondly, it sometimes almost seems as if the techniques of science were more easily learned than the thinking that shows us what the problems are and how to approach them. So what this means, and I, th I think it's true again, our educational system teaches us, gets us up to speed real quick on the methods of specialized research. Um, but we don't really get a, a full, it's not a standard part of education to get a full grasp of the problems, how to approach it. And of course, economists still argue today, and you've got you know, several of the most famous economists here, you know, all disagreeing on the stock market. You know, or, how do you predict the business cycle or depression, right? I mean, all this stuff's really complicated. Of course, we'll be talking about simpler systems than that, but still very complex. So the more you read Darwin, the more you see that he had this reductionist method that he put a lot of thought into that works pretty well um, if you follow it. So one is to understand the organism in its natural environment. This is something that Darwin was a master of, a master naturalist. He would focus on an organism and just learn everything he could about it. And then if he's going to try to explain something about how the organism is behaving or a particular structure it has, it's useful to look at comparative data, look at closely related species, and come up with hypotheses and really, not just come up with one, but try to come up with several, be imaginative. Okay, and then there's the second part that's really important, which is you try to disprove your imagination, okay? You, you want to be willing to give up your, if you have a favorite elegant hypothesis, okay? Again, you know, imagination is important with coming up with a set. And then abductive reasoning is, some, is a lot of times what evolutionists employ, which is also called inference to the best explanation or strong inference. So you have a set of hypotheses. You can't, you basically have to choose which one's best given the, given the data and given what you've, uh, what evidence you have so far. And you always kind of, you never fully accept your hypothesis. You might have the best one at the time. Do you really think that people obey the first one that you wrote? There you go. Most Darwinists are biased in favor of a pet hypothesis. Okay. The friends do not share the same commitments. Okay. So through discourse, Darwinists formulate and test hypotheses. Now Darwin himself functioned, in my opinion, like a scientific field because he, you know, over the course of 20 years, he, he developed this theory and he thought about it and went back and, and did that kind of discourse with himself. Of course, he wasn't himself immune to occasionally, uh, you know, not getting it right on, or not being imaginative enough to, you know, come up with a, a theory for genes, you know, or something like that. Uh, 
Didn't he also do experiments? Right, right. I mean, he came up, he, he imagined, and he did lots of experiments to, to, to disprove his hypothesis. And he, he got rid of plenty of his favorite ones. Could you define Darwinism? Define Darwinism. I would say it's uh, basically the approach of explaining diversity based on within population changes, explaining biological diversity. Um, so you're not equating it with adaptation? No, but I would say that, that it's, uh, you know, adaptation and natural selection was a major part of the Darwinian theory. It's not everything, obviously. Um, and, and the, you know, there's, there's some confusion about, uh, I think, adaptionism, because on the one hand, you know, if, if you come up with an imaginative hypothesis or you tell a story, um, you know, it's also, it's often seen as a just-so story. On the other hand, if you don't do that, you might be limited to your hypothesis that you've got, and you never have a set to choose from. So, so both can be important. I'm not sure I understand what's behind the question. Is, it, oh. is there a contention about what Darwinism is? I thought it was pretty cut and dry, but it's enough on that. I think the usual view is that, I guess I wouldn't even say usual. A lot of people view Darwinism as just the view that everything is evolved by natural selection. And with adaptation, I think Owen's suggesting that we have a different. Yeah. In fact, I'm just trying to figure out what terms are here. Yeah, I'd say more uh, focus on within population change. And he didn't. He didn't say that everything had to be natural selection. You know. I mean, Darwin didn't. So, uh, but he did focus. He did limit his focus to within species, you know, the evolution of species, and not so much uh, higher level processes. Okay. So, why study microbial social evolution? One reason is to understand human diseases, uh, genetic basis of behavior in animals and other organisms, the evolution of cooperation, the evolution of multicellularity, which is why we're here. And here's one to think about is the origin of organisms. Okay, so this is a general con concept that I'll talk about a little more. Okay, so a lot of times when people talk about the origin of organisms, they think of the origin of life. Okay, the first uh, thing that had a replicator, maybe, or some, something capable of evolving. Um, and one, one quote I like a lot from Fontaine and Buss is, is that multiple levels of organization have emerged in the history of life, and each such emergence raises the same existence problem as does life itself. And so this is based on the idea that at these different levels, you've met the requirements for evolution by natural selection again. So the individual organism 
is usually a, a multicellular organism. It's often assumed to be a unit of selection, right? But those evolved from unicellular organisms. So the ability to evolve at a new level must have originated through evolutionary processes. And one thing that's important is you have variation between groups, and that uh, allows selection to act between groups rather than within groups. You can then get cooperation within organisms, and you have this again at the colonial level, with some extreme examples like siphonophores, uh, where you've got all these very differentiated individuals uh, making up a colony that share resources. Okay, now the origin of life. It's, in, it's an interesting to look at this problem because it, it shares similar, similarities with the other transitions. But the origin of life, um, a, a big problem is the error threshold and how you replicate. You don't have an uh, enzyme or something to catalyze the uh, copying of the DNA. Oh, sorry, the, the replicator DNA wasn't around yet. Um, so one one idea is that the same molecule RNA or whatnot would fold and catalyze its own reaction. Now this is this is like you know this is a very rough picture. It's not meant to be realistic or anything. I mean, okay. So I'm just giving I, you know this isn't this right here is not my field, but it's it's a general uh, concept that's important. So uh, if you didn't have, say, for example, uh, some population structure that you could get from like a liquid uh, lipid bubble here, um, you could have uh, templates that don't also produce the replicates that increase in, in frequency. And then with a stronger population structure, you'd have the same related molecules and compartments. Okay. And then you would, uh, that would sustain cooperation and replication. And then um, there's also a concept called the hypercycle, where between unrelated molecules, you have um, kind of a mutualism uh, that's, that helps sustain a, a greater amount of replication. Of course, ultimately, you get genes and chromosomes, which different genes are cooperating together. Of course, one problem with studying the origin of life is it happened almost four billion years ago. The world looked a lot different. There's a lot of information loss. It's really tough to test the hypotheses. We can you know, come up with plausible models and, and everything, but, but one thing that's nice about um, these more recent transitions, like the transition to multicellularity, is that it didn't happen four billion years ago. It happened pretty recent, like a billion years ago. <laughs> Yeah, a hundred million years ago. Yeah, so, but but the important thing there's actually these primitive kind of multicellular organisms still around. You can contrast that to what we would have to imagine at the origin of life. You know, there's not that many uh, transitional forms between DNA and whatever came before it. You know. And so this is a, a figure here where you can see um, the kind of open circles. You've got animals. And so all of these are multicellular fungi. Some of them are quantiflagellates. We heard about them from uh, Mimi Cole. You got slime molds, bicuostilids. Uh, those are acellular. 
and then cell, or sorry, cellular, and then acellular, the plasmodial. And these these uh, are multinucleate, so it's like a huge cell with a whole bunch of nuclei. Um, okay, brown algae, diatoms, umycetes, uh, ciliates. There's a new one here, which used to be uh, thought to be uh, with the the Dictyostilids limelds, but um, it's actually, this is brown in current biology 2012, um, brown et al. And then uh, this, this is a, a develops by aggregation, red algae, land plants. Uh, so lots of examples of multicellularity. Yeah? So should we be thinking differently about um, multicellularity as an animal? cellular boundaries between nuclei and the uh, plasmodial slime mold example that you told us about where it's, I don't know anything about this, so they're, they're multinucleate but not multicellular. Is that an important distinction or unimportant? Yeah, I, I mean, it's similar in that there's uh, cooperation going on between different nuclei. Uh, are different in predictable ways from their dynamics in multicellular systems? I don't know. Well, certainly there's, uh, um, as we saw in the uh, talk the other day on Neurospora, uh, there's some fungi, you know, where it's basically the same thing, where it's, you know, these uh, nuclei just moving between the compartments and, and uh, it's basically the same thing as a plasmodial slime one. So, those, you know, fungi, then you get to the basidiomycetes, and then they have um, compartments and stronger septae between the compartments, and so then they're more cellularized. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question, though. If, I mean, there's no really large complex organisms with, um, I mean, there's nothing like an animal, and the, the trend in fungi is when you get real big, you become cellular, and it could have something to do with physical uh, constraints, or, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. But aren't there, aren't there, yeah. aren't there stages in the life cycle of complex organisms that where the cell cells break down and you're left with nuclei? Yeah, when the gametes fuse in sex. Um, <coughs> But uh, as far as I know, there's not any really large organism that's just a real, just a single cell with lots of nuclei in it. And, you know, in a plant, it's pretty obvious. I mean, you know, you have cell walls, and that, that contributes to the structure. Um, it might have something to do with the ability to, to form organs and have differentiated cell types. You know, I mean. I don't think there's any, uh, as far as I know, they haven't shown that nuclei in these things become differentiated. I had a question. Where, where's Volvox on this diagram? It's in the green branch, I guess. But I would, uh... Or, <coughs> well, it's, a, it's a chlorified vacuum. Okay. Okay, so the, and another good reason is that even within one of these lineages, you have a lot of diversity of life cycles and um, you know transitions from some simpler types and to more complex. And there's a whole suite of 
questions you can ask. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I think will be important for the field of microbial evolution is to look at some of these. Uh, this is a cellular slime mold or social amoeba phylogeny. There's just all these. There's all these different traits, um, and uh, it, it's not clear what some of these things do. Or, kind of, for example, some of these slime molds make these whorls of spores, whereas other ones just form one, a single fruiting body. Um, some of them have a stalked migration. Other ones migrate without a stalk. Um, and so what these um, structures do in the natural environment is an interesting question. And um, I think that's one, one place where we could learn some more. And of course, you got Volvox, Volvocine green algae. Volvox being the, uh, one of the most uh, differentiated and complex types. And so again here, you can see, okay, you've got millions of years ago, right? And um, a Triassic origin back 275 million years ago of uh, kind of the first ancestors. And so here you can see that because this happened in the recent past, relatively recent, you, you've got a lot of uh, forms for comparison. So we're going to hear a lot about this, I think, later when some people that actually work on this come. But um, th there's a a paper, pretty famous, called the Twelve-Step Program on how to build a, uh, a Volvox uh, carteri. And originally, you know, the guy said, "Okay, these are going to go in order." And then, when people actually did the phylogeny, you've got all the different numbers coming up in kind of different spots, and so that shows, you know, how how you can test a hypothesis uh, just with phylogeny. Uh, that's that's based on development, knowledge of development. So evolutionists, you know, constantly are evaluating, uh, revamping their stories. Okay, so evolvability. This is this is just a little diagram I drew up to help understand this concept. So, and the relationship of relatedness. So let's imagine you've got something that's sort of like a Volvox, except this is an imaginary critter. Um, that's, it's planktonic and it's got uh, a sterile stoma and the somatic cells around the, the edge and then you've got a germline cell in the middle. Okay. Now right here you've, you've got low relatedness. So these are mixed up. The germline cell, the red one here, doesn't have any of its uh, somatic cells along with it. The somatic cells became dispersed throughout the population. Each one is in a group with a blue. And so here, they're all together. And so now you can see what this does for evolvability. And this has nothing to do with you know, a, a problem of cooperation necessarily. It's just, um, I mean, it does. But you can also think of, of it in terms of uh, just selection acting. So the red in a deep water, red uh, in deep water is basically camo. It's hard to see. So, in this case, um, all these, uh, if a predator comes along, it's going to be able to see these, and there's no preferential benefit going to the red one, even though it codes for this phenotype. Okay, so it's lost. And so basically, there's just no 
um, ability of group level selection to operate. Here, on the other hand, with high relatedness, they're concentrated in the same group, so the somatic cells help their germline because they make it camo. Now, you know, it's not eaten. The predator now eats these, and this guy gets an advantage, so it increases in the population. So that's <coughs> one way to think about it. Now, Bonner pointed out the importance of bottleneck life cycles for uh, put, putting variation between organisms. And um, I really liked his figures. That this was back in 1966. So something as large as a blue whale with a 100 quadrillion cells in it, the largest animal that ever lived, comes from one cell. Okay. Now, even though there's a bottleneck life cycle, a lot of organisms fuse. A lot of animals with a bottleneck life cycle have the potential to fuse, and then that opens up the potential for mixing once again. So here's hydractinia, and um, that's a cnidarian. This is Batrillus, and these are both marine invertebrates, and you fungi, neurospora, myxomyces, these are true slide molds. They all can fuse and have fusion compatibility systems. And um, so we have bus um, um, had a hypothesis that, that this will help control somatic parasites, which are basically anything that usurps the benefits of somatic cooperation. And so a transmissible cancer like has recently spread in Tasmanian um, is an example of a somatic parasite because it it just doesn't contribute anything to the to the to the soma. Okay, so so now um, we're going to get to a uh, problem that's been addressed of organismality and cooperation. Okay, so here you've got uh, two unicellular organisms. Uh, Mixococcus sedentus and Dictyostelium. Uh, and Mixococcus bacteria and it lives in the soil and it eats uh, other bacteria with a wolf, wolf pack hunting behavior. Enzymes and digest, it's kind of like a public good. And then cellular slime molds, the social amoebae. Um, individual amoebae are, are capable of going around and, and, and eating on their own, but the degree to which cooperation occurs during that part of the life cycle is unknown. But you can just, if you look at one under, under the microscope, you can just see it uh, grabbing bacteria. Now these unicellular organisms are also multicellular. There's another part of their life cycle where they form a, a multicellular fruiting body. Mixo uh, produces this fruiting body where uh, Sorry, I have a question. When yeah. you were talking about wolf pack hunting behavior, what is the evidence? I mean, what, uh, what do you mean? Well, it means basically that, that they're, um, because they secrete this public good, it's kind of a cooperative behavior. Like, when, when a cell secretes a digestive enzyme, it can be used by other cells around it. It's, and there's kind of a, it can gain some of it, but it's also lost. So, can they yeah. independently? I mean, if 
the mixer. Yeah, I guess not. I, like if you take a single mixer, so I don't know. They normally feed us. Joan says no. <laughs> they move around together as well. Yeah, and they, they kind of swarm. Then you've got Bictiocilium discoidum, which is the organism I worked on. Uh, forms a slug, uh, first aggregates, forms a slug. This usually happens, it can happen under the soil and the slug can move to the surface along gas gradients or heat gradients. It can also happen at the surface. Uh, the uh, anterior portion of the slug becomes the stalk and the posterior becomes spores. About 80% about becomes spores although there's a variation in this. And then some produce a uh, uh, dye to form the stock. Okay. And then this usually, uh, you can see these on the, the edge of a uh, surface or on a leaf, you know, you see, you see these out in nature. Okay, so Mixo, um, it's susceptible to cheating under low, uh, well-mixed laboratory conditions. So this is an experiment that uh, Feynman and Velser carried out in 2003. Uh, basically, they put these uh, through rounds of uh, starvation on a on a petri dish to induce fruiting right here, and then heat to kill uh, non-spore cells, and then grow them again azenically in culture and liquid culture and then play again. And what happened was there was a particular uh, variant that arose in a prior selection experiment that they used for this one that uh, they called obligate cheater, OC. And this thing would cause the population to go extinct. It would just spread really rapidly. And uh, this is what the wild type looks like. And this is what the OC looks like when it's clonal. It just doesn't produce fruiting bodies. And all, it doesn't produce spores at all. So it just dies when it's alone. And this shows what happened when they mixed the wild type, which is the solid line with the OC. Basically, it just took two rounds of this before the population crashed. And so that happened in eight out of 16 replicates. Um, I think in the other ones, it was maintained at some frequency, but it certainly had a, was very disruptive to cooperation. So make the population go extinct in half of the trials, but it arose every time they did the experiment, or this was a strain that they engineered so that it could only be an obligate cheater? It arose, uh, so prior to this experiment, they did a, a thousand uh, generations of vegetative growth in liquid, and this was a, uh, the OC had 14 mutations different from the ancestor. These, some of these mutations affected the, the social genes for forming a fruiting body. So it was a variant that popped up sometimes when they ran the experimental <coughs> right. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pop up always or just sometimes? Um, I mean, they did a, a thousand generation experiment. They had several cheater types that came out of it. This was one of them. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if they've gotten it multiple times or not. But in, in this experiment, they, they use the one isolate multiple times, right? Okay, so then that naturally raises the question if, if these populations go extinct uh, when they're well mixed, what's the nature like, right? Is it well mixed or not? And so... Why didn't uh, the mutant go to fixation and more replicates? It's the same mutant. I don't know. Give it some evolution. Sometimes you get additional mutations that do something. Um, so this is uh, from uh, 2011. They, uh, uh, Suzanne Kramer and, and uh, Belliser looked at some natural fruiting bodies uh, that they isolated from actual soil from nature. And so they looked at 10 fruiting bodies. And here you've got the number of they genotype just a few spores from each one. And the way I've got this table, so here's their table. Okay, so they, uh, they genotype these uh, seven uh, loci here. And there's one, two, three, four. That's right, it's uh, six. Yeah, six. So they genotype six loci. And each each locust was polymorphic with six or seven alleles. And they're color-coded here, okay? Now, if you look at within the fruiting body and you just look at the genes, these are uh, phenotypes. But here are the genes. So, for example, this, this fruiting body here has, it's, uh, it's clonal at all these loci except for this one. And it has this one variant here. This, this fruiting body differs at only one gene. This one's clonal, so there's no difference to any of them. Same here, same here. Here, this one has one variant, uh, one variant, one gene. And so what you see here is that in, in, in some of these fruiting bodies are completely clonal uh, based on what they measured. And then in other ones, but you, know, you never see, say, this genotype, a totally different multi-clonal genotype in another fruiting body. Okay, that, that suggests that each fruiting body came from one cell in the recent past, and that these mutations were somatic mutations. Okay. Um, now, Are I. The colors, uh, <coughs> I mean, did the colors match? And so the pink, the deep pink, for example, is that the same deep pink up on top as down? This one, yeah, so two. It's all this generated by uh, yeah, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Now they did find some uh, phenotypic diversity within some of these. Um, in, in the swarming rate right here. 
Uh, this is one of the phenotypes they use to distinguish, uh, that can vary. And um, how quickly they form spores. Is that just parallel mutation to the same? Well, these are all from a, a, a local population, and they could just share, share that allele by chance. No, these are these. So, what you'd expect if these were chimeras is you would see multilocus genotypes different multilocus genotypes within the same breeding body, okay? So these are all from the same little local patch of soil, okay? Now, look at this one, right? It's, it's completely different than this one in its multilocus genotype. Now, if these things were mixing up, you would see some of that and some of this in the same fruiting body. Each color is a given allele in a column. So if there's yeah. black in column one, Okay, well, the important thing here is that there's not that much mixing genetically between these. Now, what, what I did here was just ask, what's the minimum relatedness if you calculate it out, assuming that we just call, you know, something that has one little difference, I'm gonna call it a different clone, it's unrelated. So I'll give you a, a minimum estimate, okay? It's conservative to, over, to overestimating or, uh, the relatedness. And so in that case, um, you know, this is the number of um, spores from clone one to this fruiting body, this first fruiting body. Four spores from clone one, two spores from clone two. There was not another clone. Frequencies for the two clones. That gives you the relatedness for the fruiting body. And for the second one, five and one, so that one is 0.72, six, zero, zero, so that's clonal, okay? So then just take the average of that, it's 0.84, which is actually about the same thing as, well, there's a similar thing for Dicti, but on a lot more fruiting bodies. Uh, but the important thing, though, is to suggest that they come from one cell. Okay, now, are there obligate cheaters in nature? It's the second question. Um, so Kramer et al. 2010 looked at developmental timing of these different clones, and this is one thing that you expect, uh, at least the uh, obligate cheater that they looked at had a slow timing. So you've got a lot of diversity in developmental timing. Here you've got a slow clone, A94, right here. So 24 hours is just doing what this one did way back here. So you'd expect uh, these slow ones to be uh, the cheaters. 
Okay, so um, these are these are three clones here that just delayed sporulation all the way to the end of the experiment. It was 160 hours, and so boom, is it, this would look like this might be a, an obligate shooter. Yeah, that, that would be my hypothesis if I looked at this. Okay, these are clearly different from those. Okay, now in another study, however, they took this one, A9, and competed it against other clones, and it turned out to be a victim. So it got cheated. So, and then A41, which they also tested, was just kind of middle of the road. And then uh, A66 was not tested. Okay, so based on the data, uh, Velister and his colleagues, uh, uh, Kramer, came up with this kind of model that um, where they've got uh, kind of these different groups that where sometimes cheaters might build up within the group. They all are uh, within the group have kinship, so they're, they might come from a single cell, but um, he, he kind of thinks that they might persist for a while in the population. It's possible there could be multiple rounds of development. Um, and as we'll see in a second, there's some... Uh, kind of kin discrimination that can maintain boundaries between colonies. What about phenotypic variability? What was that? What about phenotypic variability? You could have, you could have uh, the same genotype adapting to different strategies. Yeah, yeah, you could have phenotypic variability within... Uh, of course, most multicellular organisms have a lot of phenotypic varia variability within them, right? And uh, But it doesn't disrupt the somatic uh, cooperation. So in a, a large, long-lived organism, you might have cancer um, resulting from you know, a whole host of things, including potentially you know, phenotype switching or some ancestral pathway. But genet a lot of genetics uh, are involved. So, um, so, so the question here is just, you know, do these patches go extinct are they ephemeral, or do they persist for long enough for cheaters to build up? This particular study yeah. was uh, asexual microorganisms only, or what was it? It was a Myxococcus uh, xanthus, which uh, in this part of the life cycle, they're uh, you know, they're just reproducing by fission. Okay, so they're asexual. And then the axes, or what, micron to meters on X and Y? Oh, that's just saying that this is at the scale of micrometers. Very, very small scale. So they did some studies at centimeter scale population structure within centimeter scale, and then, like, really meter and kilometer scale. And so there's population structure at they saw isolation by distance at, um, at like a thousand or two thousand kilometers, and then very little population structure at a, a meter or centimeter scale, and then within that scale you have then population structure again. So it's, yeah. Also, 
related to their biology, I just don't know this. So they have to make a fruiting body in order to spore. And then does every cell in the fruiting body get to make a spore or contribute to it, or only some? No, it's only some. It's, uh, I think, uh, gosh, I get this mixed up. Is it like 90%? It's like 99% die, so the whole, okay, yeah, the whole thing is really hard to understand. It's highly controversial exactly yeah, right. they die, yeah. whether they're poisoned, whether they're volunteers. And it's impossible to tell before the form of fruiting body which ones are going to survive and make a spore? What's the earliest that we know about whose genome will survive? Well, with the, with the cheaters, they, I mean, they know a priori that they're going to preferentially form spores that just, you know. Uh, but in terms of if you've got one clone and say variation in health or something, I, I don't know that. But this, this um, yeah, so if you have 10 percent uh, forming spores and there's like a big advantage to avoiding the death. Whereas in Dictius, you know, 80 percent, in Dictius and Discoidium, you got 80 percent uh, make it in, so then there's less of an advantage to cheating. So in this system, you, that's why you can get the cheater building up so fast, is because you know there's just a huge filter. If you're just if you're 10 percent, say, then you can all all of a sudden become 100 percent in one generation. Um, but you can't do that if in Dicky, for example. So just yeah. related to the question about phenotypic variability on the previous slide, is there some kind of baseline? Formulation rate that either from experiments or natural populations. Do we have a, an expected range of wild type, for lack of a better term, uh, sporulation rate, so that we can say those clones A one sixty six nine. This is on. This is weirdly low, and so we think they are cheaters. Or uh, is that something that we can apply here? Or as far as I know, this is the first um, study to look at variation between wild clones. And sporulation rate, and so yeah, I mean, so some of them, you know, up there, and you know, something like this, you don't know what's causing it. I mean, it could be the particular laboratory condition they're using, and if you put it at a higher temperature or something, these clones, you know, could be up there. I mean, who knows, right? You'd have to test a lot of different things. Is being part of a fruit body necessary? In Mixo, they've never um, actually done an experimental test to show an advantage to it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could say that they're not. Um, if it were true that there were no benefit to it, then they could be just maybe uh, opportunists to, to get into the. The surviving population, That's just nice. or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this, I think, is one of the most interesting results. So if you take uh, a couple of clones from the same. Uh, small, small soil sample and mix them, they'll kind of act antagonistically towards each other. Now these right here are from a, a larger uh, sample size, but they did this also for a local scale 
uh, so here, for example, you got B and E by themselves uh, having developed, and then this is the mix. And you can see you know, A and F, and then the mix of A and F. So you see some different morphologies happening at the mix than clonal. Um, if you look at the average group cost, which is basically, um, if you take these two, if you take all the spores that are here, all the spores that are here, and you average it and divide it by two, and you take all these spores, and you ask which one's more. You know, is it the is it the one where they're mixed or the average of these two? Okay, what you find on average is that the mixes are have a cost. Okay, a significant cost of 0.13. Um, this is a log. Uh, so basically, that's an important finding because if you have an average cost to mixing like this, you can have selection for avoiding mixing. Okay, if your choice is then um, like you know if these two colonies are right next to each other. And, you're, and they're faced with the decision, do I want to you know, go ahead and kind of fuse and mix up with this guy or not? Well, if that's going to result in some type of antagonism, it might be better just to stay separate. And what you actually see, you take clones that co-occur at the microscale. They, they always form these, uh, what they call Dien's lines, boundaries uh, that separate the two colonies. Um, so based on their compatibility assays in 78 local isolates, they, they found 45 valid recognition alleles, which is really polymorphic. Okay, that's, that's suggesting there's some strong balancing selection for that um, locus. Or locus. So this is a parameter value, which is uh, it's this divided by the average of these two. It's the log of that. It's total spores. Okay. Yeah, total spores here. Okay. Yeah. But if they took those mixes and forced them to stay mixed over a period of time, would they get over that? I don't know. Do they have other data to support claiming that it's that other recognition? Yeah, um, good question. Uh, I know that that can happen. You know, if you just you're just secreting something, but that has nothing to do with. I mean, the the thing about it though is that if you have the same clone, it doesn't do it, right? But if, it's, if it's just like the, the buildup of some secreted thing that in, in some bacteria it actually happens with the same clone, you'll get a line. Be the mechanism for the kin discrimination? It could, but it could just be, could, just be my way of putting another 
possibility out there. But it's a mechanism, not a reason. Uh, well, we don't know the mechanism. It's just one kind of column goes differently against another. And there's many differences, I presume, between 23 and 47. Well, it's going to be relevant too, with respect to the mechanism of the frequency dependence here. Right? I mean, you're really blasting these guys. Put in one cell of one type, or many of the other, you still get the same level of recognition at the, the cell level. Or is there something inducing yeah, I don't, the discrimination? It'd be tough to do at the cell, cell level. Yeah, I, I think these are important points, and they're related to some discussions that have come up earlier. Owen and I have talked about it also, and what, what, what level of explanation are we looking for, and what do we mean by mechanism, and what do we mean by reason, and, uh, and different uh, researchers will have different, obviously, goals, but also different even definitions of what counts as a mechanism, and what has explanatory power, and what doesn't, so well, do we don't have any answers to this. This is the very first evidence of this in this organism, and, for example, in marine invertebrates, they did these types of tests, to test for compatibility for many years and didn't know, didn't have the technology to figure out what the genes were. And, um, and then when they figured out what the genes were and sequenced it and looked at all the alleles, it supported their uh, phenotypic assays. And, in some, and actually to some degree the phenotypic assays tell you more than just sequencing the genes because you actually know which differences are functional. It's, it's the test for like if two organisms begin fusing and then reject, and then two others just go ahead and fuse. Um, you know, if, if all you have is the gene sequence data, you don't know if that, and there's like one SNP or something, you don't know if that's a, actually coding for a different functional allele or not. Sometimes a single change can, sometimes it doesn't. So actually these phenotypic uh, uh, assays are important and but yeah, I mean, once you have the genetic mechanism, then it's the, obviously increases your confidence and more. You know, the, the next, uh, you know, usually after you figure out the, the first step, then you go and you ask, what, what's the mechanism? That's the next step. You first have to observe it. Um, but th but this is a, um, you know, it's it's suggestive. I mean, you must need some yeah. special population genetic level. I mean, that's a lot of polymorphism. 78 isolates have 45 L recognition types. There must be hundreds. Yeah. So, so, so the question is what maintains that level of polymorphism? Right. So, so this is just a very simple explanation. Um, if <laughs> So, so the fitness of an organism, if you're just assuming, okay, you, you can fuse with another one or not, and this is self, not self-recognition, okay? Basically, and you're thinking about the fitness, uh, you assume this organism um, will reject one that differs in its allele, okay? It'll fuse with one that's the same, it'll reject one that's different, okay? Then you can think about the fitness of a particular in the population. Um, it's basically, 
going to be equal to 1 plus its frequency times the benefit of fusion minus the cost. So if the benefit of fusion outweighs the cost, then common alleles will be favored because you'll just want to go ahead and fuse with everybody. It's, it's what, I mean, it's actually, it's the average, in this model, you're, you're assuming that it's, it's the average, um, it's just what I just said about the, you know, if you have two alone, they're clonal, and then you got the mix where they fuse, um, a benefit would be anything that's uh, contributing to the, uh, to that mixed type being higher fitness than the two on their own. The cost, that could result from, say, your know, complementation of function or, um, you know, in uh, some fungi you have this complementation effect of different genotypes or it could be that um, the thing, just from being larger, the, the thing uh, has some net benefit to getting bigger, right? And so then the cost could be uh, some incompatibility, it could be antagonistic behavior. Um, you could have two clones that are basically adapted to different you know, types of lifestyles possibly, and if they fuse, then that's disruptive. So basically, if the cost of fusion outweighs the benefit, which is suggested by the, the looking at the, the fusion at, or the assays here, um, then you have selection for rare alleles. Okay, now we'll move on to Dicti. Okay, so again, um, we had some experiments that showed that under uh, the manipulated population structure, under lower structure, you can have these cheaters um, spreading. So in the, this first case, um, we used a, uh, a cheater called F-box A. It's also known as cheater A. It was isolated through a mutagenesis experiment. And in this case, at the top panel, you can see the, uh, the cheating advantage, which this, this cheater basically just avoids the stock, gains a four-thirds advantage at, at every frequency. So at each frequency, it got the same, uh, it increased the, by the same proportional amount. Now, as the cheater uh, was more common in the population, the group productivity goes down, so the total support production. Um, when, it's, when it's fixed, there are no spores produced. In that case, it's a lot like the obligate cheater from Mixo. And so when you're thinking about a rare mutant invading a population, you can think in terms of these frequencies. So if it's uh, a low relatedness condition, this population is going to be well mixed. A rare mutant is going to be kind of dispersed out and mixing with the wild type quite often. So you'll be more over here. So actually, a relatedness of a quarter would be equal to the situation where you have a frequency of 0.25 in the fruiting body. Okay. Now, anything greater than that, which is a relatedness at invasion, um, the fitness of the cheater is lower than the fitness of wild type. The reason for that is that now that cheater is concentrated into its own groups, 
and selection can can uh, can disfavor those groups versus the wild type. Um, and so that kind of yields a prediction that if relatedness is greater than this, uh, you should have the wild type persisting. And um, then over here we've got uh, an experiment where we had a well mixed condition and uh, 30 generations of transfer. And just uh, there's no mutagenesis involved here. Um, yet, nevertheless, these cheaters popped up. Um, so similar to the, the Mixo experiment, they, there was no mutagenesis. It was just serial transfer. Except here, it was only 30 generations and not 1,000. <laughs> so it, it happened pretty fast. And um, So this is the number of non-fruiters that built up. And then if you have just a, a situation where you're, you're highly structured, um, there's no cheaters building up from just mutation alone, so that's suggesting that there's some advantage to it. It's not 30 generations. 30 transfers? It's many more generations. Sorry, 30 transfers, yes. It's only 30 opportunities for gene selection. 30 multicellular generations? For the non-experts in the audience, can you say a little bit more yeah. about the protocol predicting you, you has, has a life cycle and you do a transfer at a particular point in the life cycle? You harvest spores, how do you do that? Um, yeah, so you, they're, they're dissolved into a liquid, do you do something in that liquid? Or what, what's going on with these transfers? So, in this experiment, um, you, what you do is you plate them down, and then basically it takes about three or four days. The cells divide a number of times, and then they starve. They're eating bacteria on the okay. auger plate. Thank you. Okay, and then when they starve, they aggregate and form a multicellular fruiting body. Yes. So you've got this lawn of, of fruiting bodies yes. here. And so then you take, um, I guess with a loop or... Uh, you take a kind of random sample along this, you put that in, into a shaker, mix it up, and then you plate it out again. Okay, so then that gives you, uh, so then they grow up again, they go through another round of development. And so each each round of development, there's a chance for cheating. You know. So with the wire, you're, you're primarily connecting, collecting fruity bo fruiting bodies, and then you're, you're not collecting stalks by mistake, or? Yeah, you can um, you can pick up the spores without picking up the stalks, and the. Uh, yeah, it shouldn't the, matter. Because the yeah, the, dead right. Right. Be nice to test that. You're dead. <laughs> yeah, they undergo a program called death. But in a real situation, these spores actually they spread. So the more spore you make. And you spread, and therefore the cheaters are automatically being eliminated for the population. Well, uh, but it depends on the structure, right? If, if you're a cheater and you make, you try to make your own fruiting body, and you're just with other cheaters, you don't produce a. So what you show here that they feed less and less 
spores, so necessarily they will be they will be eliminated. If you if you introduce if you if you did okay. dispersal. Okay, so if you're if you're below 0.25, okay, the cheater gets an advantage. Um, it avoids the stock. Okay, so it doesn't contribute to the stock. It doesn't put any cells in the death pathway. It just goes to spores. Okay, and so it actually puts about 25% uh, more cells into the spores than the wild type. Okay, so it's getting an advantage by avoiding the stock. Okay. Now, if you come down, it also it also hurts the group level of function in terms of the um, the overall uh, fruiting bite doesn't produce as many spores. You add those things up. Now, below above this line, the cheater has an overall advantage versus versus the wild type. If you're comparing a say a, a fruiting body with 10% cheaters in it versus a, a fruiting body with 100% wild type. Okay, you're, you're comparing the fitness of the cheaters in that fruiting body to the fitness of the wild type in a wild type fruiting body, purely wild type fruiting body. The cheater has an advantage. And the reason you're, you're putting it that way is that when the cheater is invading, the wild type is fixed in the population. So all the other individuals in the population are, are wild type. So if you're the cheater, all you got to do is be better than the average of the wild type. Okay, so so in its own fruiting body, at a relatedness of 0.10, it's going to be 10%, and its fitness is going to be higher than a, than a wild type cell in a wild type fruiting body. Okay, so. A cheater could invade if the population was well mixed. And that's exactly where we got the cheater from because somebody did a transfer where they were mixing up the spores every generation and that allowed that cheater to spread. Okay, so although it's really wacky and you wouldn't think anything like this should exist in the wild. <coughs> It's, it's possible if it was a really well-mixed condition. And you know, when we did this study, nobody knew whether they're well-mixed or not. So um, that was the next question was, well, do these things exist in nature? Um, in the wild, or the dispersal happens because of wind? Or what is actually happening in the wind, and how close is it to what you're doing in the so in the wild, uh, where we'll see in a second, these things form on places where you've got a lot of bacteria. So they've got to reach a high density in order to form their multicellular fruiting body. And that often ha happens where something dies or something goes and takes a dump. <laughs> Roadkill. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, if you find a decaying insect under a, a rock, you know, there might be some slime molds on it. Um, if they're on the surface, now there's so many insects that eat these things, that eat decaying matter, um, larger animals, and something bigger than a slime mold, that these fruiting bodies don't last long. I mean, I've put a camera on a 
breeding body in, in the wild that lasts like five minutes. It's like fly comes and, and it's gone. But have you so, tried to introduce one of these obligate cheaters in the wild population in the field and see if they survive and how long? That, I mean, I think that would be a cool experiment. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. I mean, in your study, you, you looked for obligate cheaters in, the, oops, what, 2,000, 3,000 different wild fruiting bodies and found none? Zero? So yeah, I still think it'd be cool to, to put some out there and see what happens. I mean, why not? We're doing the lab. Well, we know the mutations happen easily from the lab work, and we know they are common. Yeah, we're going to get that. And we know the clonality in wild fruiting bodies. So, you know, you try to do the experiments that you're going to be able to publish, at least. Well, I mean, I think the idea of, of putting out um, variants, I mean, you could actually do that with any part of the life cycle. You could knock out the stalk. You could knock out the, the ability of the slug to migrate. Um, uh, it's unclear to me. I mean, I've never tried to get funding for something like that. I don't know. You know, they certainly don't like you to, to just throw out gene genetically modified organisms in the environment without knowing what it's going to do. Right? So, you know, we. Once again, I mean, these are the these are types of questions that we don't know. They're hard to get at, and it's one of my arguments that we, we need to know more about that type of question. I mean, what I can say about that is that if you if you go looking for them in the summer, it's really difficult to find them because it's so dry. They need a, a certain amount of humidity. Um, the fall is the best time I've seen because you've got this moisture and and um, a lot of decaying leaf. So there's a lot of biological activity, a lot of um, turnover. Um, but you know they're not—they're not easy to find, and it's, it's unclear if it's because they just get taken up so quickly, or because they don't form that much. Is there a standard dicti strain that was taken in from the wild, say in the 1930s, and everybody's been using it since? Yeah. Or are you constantly, as you're applying, going out and getting? New strains, or what is the state of the field? Well, this lab was the first one, Joan and Dave's lab was the first one to get uh, wild clones to start working with them. And, and 20 years ago? Okay, well, the, the methods, I can testify to the fact that the methods weren't worked out that well because <laughs> I spent a lot of time okay. messing with it. Okay. And most of the Okay. It's a mess. It's like chromosome. Okay. And can you freeze them down and resuscitate them? That's helpful. The uh, that standard lab clone is really different than the wild type. And it's surviving the wild. <laughs> I mean, the actual clonal genotype I've heard, you can still isolate at the same spot, but. But the one that they've has been evolving in liquid culture for 60 years, I, I really doubt that it would. I mean, it, it's um, developmental. I mean, the canonical 
developmental time for Dictyosome is 24 hours because they've looked at that clone. If you look at a wild clone, it's like 12 to 14 hours. It's like half, half the time. It's, they're totally different. So to maintain the stability here, Yeah, so, so, so frequency, so you got to be careful when you're thinking about it because when, um, so a cheater can be a really low frequency in the overall population and under in a high relatedness, it's going to be at high frequency in its group, right? So if, if each free body is clonal, let's take this extreme case, then a cheater that's rare in the overall population, even though it's rare, in its own fruiting body, is going to be the only clone in its fruiting body. Okay, and so that's why a cheater can't invade at high relatedness, is because its frequency is high in its social group. Okay, now if uh, if the population is well mixed, then when it's rare, a, a cheater will be mixed up with the wild type, in which case it could gain that advantage. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know if that answers like, your question. Yeah. We can talk about it. Are most spon uh, spontaneously arising cheaters are, are they just sick cells, or do they, at, at very low frequency, do, do you get this process? I don't really understand the question. Maybe we could talk about it afterwards. This particular cheater isn't really frequency. Uh, grab at every frequency, it's got an advantage. Yeah, and yeah, we don't know that. There's a lot of things, so we've got limited information. But they're not sick. There's plenty of cheaters. Yeah, I'm sort of exaggerating just to try and make a point. Yeah. I don't know. Thank you for well, what you told me to say. It's hard if it's getting back to the zealous or I'm just having a hard time seeing how large. I guess maybe this isn't. Yeah, they, they sort to the back of the slug and that becomes the spores. So if you take a slug and you label them and you look at it, you'll see them in the back of the slug and then sure enough, they go up to the spores.
during morphogenesis. Um, I mean, obviously it's directly correlated with their appearance in the store, but is that due to some different physical attribute that they have? Uh, maybe they move slower, I don't know how slugs work. What is it that segregates them all to the back that then has the knock-on effect of the fact that they make up more of a support population? Well, it, it knocks out this particular protein, and I don't know. The, I don't know exactly what the. Um, yeah, I don't. Know, I don't know exactly the, what it what it does. Um, functionally, I think that original paper might. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I, they're at the back of the slugs. I mean, they're they're moving more slowly or something. I don't know a lot about slugs. Um, it, it could mean probably a number of things. Okay. Yeah, I do. I do know if, if you mix. Uh, well, we won't get into it, but it could mean a number of things probably. Yeah. You mentioned that the fruit bodies were always clonal. Thousands of children mentioned this. And I was at a meeting recently where someone said they found mixed slides. So is it, are they, you know, who's right and wrong? Are they always well? Are they sometimes mixed? Yeah, so, so that study was, was up, it was in India, and they had um, just a few fruiting bodies, 10 or 12 or something, and several different species, purpurium and gigantium, I think. And they used a they used rapid markers, which are notorious for showing you know variation where it's not there. Now they said that they did the proper control and everything, but journals have outlawed. I mean, in molecular ecology, they don't even let you submit a paper to them if you use that technique for that type of question, because you know it's. I, you know, I, for me, I mean, one other they had they had a free body that had 28 something like 28 different clones and, and you know 30 spores or something like this. And if you actually go out there and you, you just do soil samples, you get like two clones in a soil sample. And from my stuff on on uh, deer pellets and stuff, you know, there's not 30 clones in this little spot. It's like you might have five maximum, maybe. Sometimes some different species, but it just seemed like, okay, I've got 10 fruiting bodies, I've got 100. I've got microsatellites. Um, you know, it's pretty gold standard technique. So it would be interesting to, to, to go over to India and, and see what happened. Uh, with, with <laughs> but when you were. What Joan was saying, yeah. was not saying that she was saying there were, looking at thousands of spores, there were none of these obligate cheaters. There is a bit of mixing, a bit of hybridism in the bodies that hope that those ones were. Yeah. Isn't there some underlying assumption of uh, competitive exclusion uh, when you make this measure? So you measure like an invasive fitness. Uh, and then you sort of suppose that this means that the cheater will take over the population, so you exclude some frequency dependence by the measure you are doing. Yeah, so in this case, we're just 
thinking about could it invade? Okay, we're not, we're not asking a more complicated question than that. We're just making the simplest possible assumptions. And, um, and as we'll see uh, in a second, it almost doesn't make a difference. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I went out into nature, tried to figure out how to find these things, and tried a bunch of different techniques that I didn't really know what would work. Uh, so one thing I was doing is putting dead worms out, out in the field, and you know, you got this fungus growing on it, and you, you know, you almost never see a actual slime mold. Um, I was bringing pans into the lab and dumping bacteria on them, and uh, yeah, so the lab was a cabin, so it's not a real lab. <laughs> um, and so another problem is if you got these things that kind of look like Dicty out there, they've got the same phenotype. So this is Dicty. Uh, no, sorry. These are both. This thing. This is another picture of this. It looks just like Dicty. Okay. So this. The spores are also capsule-shaped like Dicty. Got a basal disc even. So there's actually. I mean, if you're looking out there in the soil, you can see some pretty striking instances of convergent evolution between fungi and slime molds, which I think is interesting. Just. I mean. But at the time, I didn't think it was interesting. I was upset. So, yeah. Okay, so this will give you uh, an idea what happens, how hard it is to find a fruiting body. Okay, so this is where I turned over a log. Okay, there's a little crevice here. And I've got a microscope that I'm looking through and all these little crevices. So you zoom in. Okay. There's a fruiting body. That's five millimeters. Okay. Let's zoom in again. So actually, I happened upon uh, two different species here. This is Dictyocelium giganteum. You can see the long stalk. And this is Dictyocelium discoidium. Yeah. So, well, actually, I mean, for these two, I mean, I collected this one. I was doing a genetic study on that. I've got microsatellites for it that would only work in this species. This one, uh, I took it and plated it out to see what it was. I was able to identify it based on morphology. But I could tell just by looking at it probably what it was. Um, But I was looking for a way to uh, to get a good sample size because you only come across a fruiting body, you know, once in a blue moon, and I wanted to get a good sample. And just one of the things I hap uh, happened to try, my, my last thing I tried the second, the first time I went there uh, up to the mountains of Virginia to do this was put a, a dung pellet on a petri plate, and I kind of put it away when I was gathering my things to to go home, I, I looked at the dish and I was like, wait a minute, what's that? <coughs> so, you know, we had all these fruiting bites going on. And so that, um, this was nutrient auger, but I was able to do it with non-nutrient auger, so there's um, kind of what these fruiting bodies look like when they're coming out, the dung and everything. So, they're, so when they're coming out of dung, they can be pretty big. So they're, they 
they were in the deer at one point. Well, so somebody actually did a study at the same location where they were um, actually picking up uh, little salamanders and getting birds and all sorts of stuff and, and getting the, and he said massaging, and this was in the methods of the paper, but the guy told me he, mis he massaged the poop out of him or something. Okay, I don't know what that means, but he got it right from right from the organism, and he got spores. So they do. In the cases of the salamanders, he got so, several thousand spores per gram was the density. So there was like really. Yeah, on yeah, in his study, yeah. Now these, you know, they they could have come from the. The soil, or it could have, a fly could have come. I mean, I don't know. I was just picking up uh, pellets that I found on the ground. Um, so when I went during the summer, uh, it took a lot longer for fruiting bites to, to hatch from the dung, and actually took about a month. But you'd get uh, kind of like flies coming out and worms and stuff, and and then you'd get fruiting bodies. So. Um, Whereas during the fall, you get fruiting bodies within about four days. So this is just basically what I do. So if you come across a dung pile, you get an into pen, a little pen, a sterilized pen, put it on the auger, close, close the lid, of course, incubate for four to six days during the fall. Then you get fruiting bodies on about half the dung pellets that I would collect. Okay, so I use microsatellite genotyping to uh, estimate relatedness. And what a microsatellite is, it's a repeat DNA sequence. Um, three base pairs, they, uh, they mutate really fast, so they're good as genetic markers are very uh, variable. Uh, so the first way I, I looked at relatedness was I um, I took whole fruiting bodies and genotyped the fruiting bodies, the whole thing. And so then I could, if I got two peaks, I would know there was two clones in the fruiting body. Um, but the, uh, and so this, I could get an estimate. There's usually, usually only in between uh, two or three clones in the fruiting body, and I could kind of estimate how many there were based on the number of peaks. I get a maximum minimum value of the number of clones. But the way to really estimate it well was to do clonal isolation so you know exactly how many clones you're getting. So in this case, I would get a fruiting body, dilute the spores, and then plate it out. And then get the spore, uh, cl clonal plaques coming. And then, um, so I use a variable locus. It's a, it's a, I had uh, three highly variable loci, which allowed a, a, a precise uh, estimate so basically, uh, most of the fruiting bodies were uh, clonal, and this is the sample size. So here, this is the method of clonal isolation, uh, which is the more laborious method and more precise. We looked at 50 dung piles from three different times of the year, and uh, 75 fruiting bodies. And so that, that was the overall amount. So most of the fruiting bodies are clonal. Whole fruiting body method, um, this was the first thing I did. Um, I looked at 25 uh, dung piles. And so that, that yielded a, 
uh, about the same result. Um, so in terms of relatedness, yeah. In terms of relatedness, um, this is a minimum estimate from the whole free body. You can, can, you know, you kind of had to make some assumptions about how the, um, how many clones were in the free bodies. Uh, so that's a minimum estimate. And then the clonal isolation uh, gave a really high estimate of relatedness, 0.98. So. So basically, in that in that case, when it's 0.98, it's you know you have the question about frequency dependence and um, and all this. But yeah, you know, when you're basically clonal, it's uh, it's going to be real tough to cheat anything. <laughs> yeah. So then the final thing was uh, here was to look for cheaters in nature. Um, So the problem with this is that when you played out stuff from nature, you get a lot of things that look like cheaters, but they're just other amoeboid organisms, or bacteria or whatever. Um, the second problem is, okay, so cheater A. So this is, uh, this is the cheater that we had that we used for the experiment. That's what it looks like when you played it out. That's what Gudalina looks like. Which is another amoeboid thing. So it's just, you know, it looks almost just like it. Final problem is that cheater A, when it's clonal, doesn't produce spores. So it also doesn't look anything like a real social amoeba in terms of its aggregation and everything. So if you did see this and you tried to get it and played it out again, it wouldn't play it out. So unless you tried to, you know, sequence every little thing that you found, you know. Be really tough to look for them. What do metagenomic projects tell you about the frequencies and densities of mixer Well, well, you don't have to look at that. I mean, people uh, played it out sport, uh, soil samples for a long time, taking samples everywhere, and um, in Mountain Lake, in the soil, just normal kind of density would be about. Um, in a, about a 0.2 sam uh, soil sample on average, you'll have about one to three clones, and, and those will each be just one cell. And now there are some places where you get up to uh, 2,000 cells per gram of soil. Um, but I've, but I've never heard Dictyostelium discoidium being that high density anywhere. I mean, it certainly it arises in these. Places where there's dung or something. Um, so this is a way to look for them. So the genotyping method I was using with the clonal isolations uh, naturally lends itself to looking for cheater mutants, which is one of the main things I was interested in doing in the first place. So by isolating these these cells out clonally, I could um, I could be sure they were coming from a real dictyostelium fruiting body, right? So it wasn't just some random blob in the soil. If I found something that looked wacky, I would know to try to keep it alive you know, before it dies and see what it is.
Okay, so I had 95 fruiting bodies from 63 locations in four times a year and looked at 3,316 spores and every one of them had a wild type uh, type of morphology that I looked at. Um, so So where are we at here? Oh, in the interest of time, so yeah. we're past an hour and a half. Um, is, there a, is there a sense in which we should stop here and continue at another time? Or, uh, yeah. This will be, um, I mean, depending on whether people want to stay or not, it'll be done at two hours. But I, I, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I, I, I could also just I end it here. Pause yeah. You know, if there's an actual pause here, uh, and we could pick this up later, I don't, I don't think we should go past an hour and a half today, uh, because we do have another talk. People want to go to it, that's in the physics department. So. Okay. Hey, wait a minute. If the talks are normally two hours, to tell Owen now hour that this is only... Hour and a half. Hour and a half. Okay, right. everything we've heard from you and other people was that they take two hours, so I don't think it's really fair. I've never fair. said two hours, but, but I'm not... I'm I'm not, not uh, take well, two no, it's, hours. it's fine. It's fine. They can take two hours at certain blocks of time, but when we're constrained by another... Yeah, no, Jen, it's fine. People, people it's but, totally fine. But, uh, but we can schedule another whole session on this topic, so it's... Uh, yeah, what do the, people think? Do you want to continue now for another half hour? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's just one more point, so I could just go through it in two minutes. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> this looked like the beginning of a new section, so I... So wait a second. So did you find cheaters or not? No. Wait. Not obligate disruptive. Obligate. That's a huge difference between cheaters. Yeah, that I've been talking about. Yeah, obligate cheaters. Okay, so so here the question is um, how much does kin discrimination lead to this clonality, right? We've got clonal fruiting bodies. Is this because they're segregating? Okay, so there was previous studies that didn't really address that question in nature or kind of under natural conditions with clones from the same place. Okay, so what I did um, was uh, mix spores, plate them down, have them migrate through soil, collect their fruiting bodies. And so I um, wanted to make it kind of be natural outside of control where there was no soil. Okay. So it's um, three trials, 18 mixes each, uh, about a thousand free mice each. So here is a, so I did mixes from clones that were found at the millimeter scale and clones that were found meters apart, that like might come together in a dung pellet or something. Okay, I, I, genotyped all these clones and measured relatedness between them. Okay, so here's the result. So this is the proportion uniclonal. In nature, this was the lowest estimate uh, that I had from the whole fruiting body genotype. Okay, this is what I had from the lab when I mixed these things 50-50. Okay, so there were some clonal fruiting bodies. 
but um, it wasn't anywhere close to nature. So what that suggests is that these things aren't capable of just totally segregating out. You know that this this and so relatedness too is lower than than what you found in nature. Okay. But there was some significant amount of segregation overall. This is interesting because I mixed them as spores. Everybody else had done it as cells. So these things actually grew up together. So um, they had to have some way of kind of innately knowing that they were different. You know, if they, there were some cases where they segregated. And the final result was just that um, if you do an ANCOVI control for several variables in this data, uh, relatedness didn't explain the, kind of the degree that they were segregating out. Okay, so it's kind of like, you know, they segregated a little bit. It doesn't really correlate with relatedness. This is just an overall kind of pie chart. So the amount of relatedness increase that was due to segregation here was uh, this small pie here. So this was the starting condition was 50-50 mix, which if you have two clones on a, in a soil sample, that's, that could be your, your population structure, your kind of initial condition if you're making that assumption. Now there's something else that's going on, you know, if you have two clones together. Um, they could, there could be some spatial segregation or something that's kind of, that have anything to do with that. Um, so, you know, the basic point here is just we need more studies of natural population structure. We need to know what's happening in nature uh, to really understand uh, kind of the, how the theory applies to these things of what, what the questions are that need to be asked and answered. You know, I think this, this case we've, yeah, so some of my, so Greg and uh, Suzanne uh, helped me a little bit today with, in the past couple of days, answered some of my questions with Mixo. Um, so I'm thankful to them. And got John and Dave here bird watching. They were my graduate advisors. <laughs> uh, Leo Buss was my undergrad advisor and he got me interested in these questions. And then uh, my, uh, Kevin Foster and Natasha had to stay with me. There's my dad. David helped me in the field some. And Marcus, what, uh, he's a professor at Harvard, uh, at Chicago now, but he, he helped run the gene sequencer while I was doing some of this. Okay, so thank you.